I invite you to hear these words by the Apostle Paul to the church in his letter to the Colossian church. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. We acknowledge this morning that none of us would be here except for the grace of God in our life. And so I invite you to worship him this morning with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to worship today recognizing that we feel like beginners in the faith. We also acknowledge you today as the head of your body, the church. You are the one who brings hope in the midst of our despair. <clears throat> you are the one who brings light into our lives after seasons of darkness. So begin a new thing in us today, new ways of thinking, new ways of living, new ways of being a church that impacts this community. We pray this time together as a people um, longing for peace, your peace, the peace that passes all of our understanding. So meet us today as we worship you and bring life into these weary souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're beginning a new teaching series. It's called Take the Next Step. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about some of our core beliefs as a congregation and we're going to do it in the context of the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So let me give you a little bit of background. Before I do, i just tell you, last week I encouraged you to go home and read this four-chapter book. I don't know if some of you did or not. One person came in early this morning and said, I read the book, don't understand a word of it. Um, <clears throat> I said, we're going to help with that over the next few weeks. It's okay. But let me give you some background on today. The Jews who were living in Jerusalem, were just going through the motions of worshiping God. When the prophet Malachi arrives on the scene, and we know very little about this prophet except that his name means God's messenger. And we discover that Malachi is a very vigorous spokesman for God. And one of the things he strongly opposes is anyone who treats the temple or the things of God with indifference. A carelessness in worship offended him. He wants to restore a true, genuine worship of God that would reflect uh, our true relationship with our Creator. Now this message is being delivered to the Jewish people who have just come back from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And we might think that, you know, that exile period would have uh, they would have learned not to take God for granted, but evidently, like a lot of us, they slipped back into some haphazard routines pretty quickly, and God was literally put on the shelf again. So today we're going to hear what the prophet says about worship, worship that is either acceptable or not acceptable to God, and then I'll let you be the judge of how that fits into your own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us as your word unfolds before us in this Bible text today that we hear. Uh, be with us as your spirit and your word unfolds in the songs that we sing and in the participation at the table. May we sense your faithfulness surrounding us and upholding us 
So meet us in our time of weakness, in our need, and uh, with your strength. Meet us in all of our failures and discouragement with renewed vision. Touch us with your grace and love as we experience your forgiveness and your spirit in us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After listening to a long and tedious message one Sunday morning, not this church, I want to assure you, I don't think it was anyhow, <clears throat> but after restlessly listening to this long and tedious message one Sunday, a little six-year-old boy asked his father what the preacher did the rest of the week. Oh, he's a very busy man, the father replied. He takes care of church business, he visits the sick, he works on his sermon, he counsels people, and then he has to have some time to rest because speaking in public is not an easy job. <clears throat> Young boy thought for a moment and then he said, well, listening ain't all that easy either. <laughs> I see some of you nodding your heads. It's not easy to listen sometimes, is it? Especially when it's something we really don't want to hear. Let me tell you up front that you can relax this morning because our Bible lesson from the Old Testament book of Malachi is directed more toward pastors than it is toward the congregation. But I'm gonna invite you to listen in and apply what spills over because these verses will really mess with all of us. I also wanna encourage you to take some time to read through this short book and read these four chapters, maybe even once a week for the next four weeks. If you wanna take the next step spiritually and be challenged in your faith, reading the Bible is always a good uh, thing to do to grow spiritually, so I'm inviting you to read this wonderful little book. But let me give you some background on the situation that Malachi is addressing. It follows chronologically, as I said earlier, the teaching series that we just finished from Jeremiah 29. In short, here's the story. <clears throat> the Jews have returned to their homeland after living in modern-day Iraq for 70 years. The temple has been rebuilt. The worship of God has been reestablished. But things are not easy. Outwardly, everything seems okay, but on the inside, there's a new problem. The cancer of complacency is eating away at their commitment. And as God's final spokesman at the end of this Old Testament era, Malachi comes on the scene to challenge them to give God their best. And as we're listening in on this dialogue between God and his people, we learn that of all the things that God wants us to know, the most important thing is that he loves us. He loves us with a tender, affectionate, unconditional love. And just as people 2,400 years ago wondered if God really loved them, sometimes I think we ask that same question. And so Malachi starts with love and then talks about the status of their lives. Actually, it was because they did not respond to God's love that things started to head south for them again. Their worship became wimpy. Their leadership became lightweights. Their relationships began to rupture. Their offerings were anemic. They stopped serving God. And we're going to address some of those areas of concern across the next couple of weeks. But to help us understand this Bible passage today, think of the beginning and the end of the book of Malachi as two bookends. At one end is the beautiful statement in chapter 1, verse 2, 
I have always loved you, says the Lord. On the other end is the promise of verse two of chapter four, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. Now the prophecy of of Malachi begins with God's love in the present and then it ends with God's promise in the future. And everything in between is God's program to get us from here to there. And as part of his program for our spiritual progress, God longs for us to give him our best. So I wanna focus today on three ways that we can do that. First, we can give God our best by embracing an authentic faith. What we see right away in chapter uh, one, verse six, is that there are two sides to the Father's love. One side is very tender, but the other side is a little tougher. God is relational in his giving and he is resplendent in his glory and as such, we must honor him. Look at verse six. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. There are two truths here that we hold in tension. We can feel secure in God's care for us, but at the same time, we need to have respect for God's authority. God refers to himself as the father of Israel in Exodus chapter four. He calls Israel his firstborn son. And then in Exodus chapter 20, he tells us to honor your father and your mother. To honor someone is to regard them with great respect. And while the priests probably were celebrating that statement in in the commandment because they wanted their own children to honor them, God is saying that his people, including the priests, were no longer respecting God. However, God deserves to be honored because he is holy. And I want you to notice the phrase, Lord of heaven's armies. Lord is, is the spoken name of the word Yahweh because that is one name for God that was very sacred. Yahweh was considered a word too holy to be spoken by human lips. In fact, it was so revered that it was only pronounced one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, and only by the high priest, and only in the most holy place of the temple. In fact, if the name needed to be written, the scribes would actually take a bath before writing that holy name. And then they would destroy the pen afterwards. While Yahweh is difficult to define, this name refers to the fact that God is who he is. He is the one who caused everything else. He is the unchanging one. He is the one who inhabits eternity. And the title Almighty or Lord of Heaven's Armies tells us that he has this vast host of heaven ready to do his work because he has infinite authority in the universe. He has myriads of unstoppable angelic armies who do his bidding flawlessly and they never ever fail in their errands. Seven times in nine verses, 
23 times in the entire book of Malachi, God calls himself the Lord of heaven's armies. If verse 6 was directed at anyone else, the priest would probably be saying, Amen, God, bring it on, right on, let the people have it. But notice that this message is directed at them. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, It is you, it is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. Ooh, what a message. Now it's time for them to listen. By the way, this had to be a difficult message for Malachi to deliver because he was not a priest. They probably resented him. They probably looked down on him. They certainly didn't like what he had to say. The priests were showing contempt for God, which means they, had no, long, they no longer had any respect for God. They didn't like their duties. They scorned the sacred because worship had become wearisome and boring. They had the nerve then um, to even lash out at God in response. Look at the last part of verse six. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? They were taking God for granted and they fight back at this statement. How have we ever taken your name for, for uh, shown contempt for your name? See, whenever we ask God how about something or ask God to show us something, God tends to do that. In verse seven, God answers them and he says, you have shown contempt by offering defiled circum uh, sacrifices on my altar. And unbelievably, these priests uh, persist in their questioning. What do you mean we've defiled you? And then God replies by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. You see, they were just going through the motions of worship. Maybe like we do sometimes when we allow the extraordinary to be the ordinary. In fact, an over-familiarity with the holy God can lead to a place of uh, humdrum spirituality if we're not careful. Ravi Zacharias said it this way, he said, when we're bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. If God bores you, then nothing else in this life is gonna satisfy you either, I guarantee it. But Genesis 4 records what happened when two brothers, Cain and Abel, made sacrifices to God. You remember the story, perhaps Cain was a, for, a farmer and brought the first fruits of his harvest. Abel was a shepherd who brought the first of his flock as an offering to God. And for some reason, God accepts Abel's offering and he rejects Cain's offering. And people have suggested all sorts of reasons why God would do this, but it had nothing to do with the offering and everything to do with the attitude of the one who was making the offering. In 1 John chapter three, it tells us that the reason Cain's offering was not accepted was that he had a heart that was full of evil. In Hebrews 11, it says that the reason Abel's offering was accepted was that his heart was full of faith. God looked at the person making the sacrifice and then he looked at the sacrifice and he looked at the one making the offering and he was looking for authentic worship, not a sacrifice as a spiritual sham. And if we want to give God our best, we have to first embrace authentic worship. We have to stop going through the motions. We have to refuse to play church. 
and do whatever it takes to keep the spiritual fires burning within us. Some of us dishonor God and disrespect him when we try to live on what Charles Swindoll calls $3 worth of God. Swindoll writes, some of us would love to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode our soul or disturb our sleep. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk and maybe a snooze in the sunshine. We want excitement. We don't want transformation. We want the warmth of the womb, not the pain of new birth. We want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. We want $3 worth of God. Now secondly, we can give God our best by giving God priority over our possessions. You know, we can sum up Israel's whole problem by saying that they were suffering from SARS, severe acute religious syndrome, and it was highly contagious. Look at verse eight. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see, the priests were accepting not just second best from the people, but they were accepting the worse than that. They were bringing God's sick sheep and goats. They were offering the ones that weren't worth anything. Now, can you just imagine this, this parade of diseased animals limping and stumbling toward the temple their sores covered with flies, some of them probably collapsed before they even got there. And the reason God says, isn't this wrong? Is because the people and certainly the priests should have known better. Back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God made it very clear that he was not interested in substandard sacrifices. He had said something like, tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to me so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. You must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it might be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. And here's why. Because God deserves priority over our possessions. The people were more concerned about keeping what they had than they were in giving to God their best. Their hearts weren't in it any longer. They were still coming to church, but it was just a meaningless ritual to them. They had accepted mediocrity in their lives and in their leaders, did nothing about it. God sarcastically then tells them, go try and offer that same thing to the governor. See if he's gonna be pleased. You see, the bottom line is that they thought God didn't care. They thought they could get away with it. God didn't care what they did. After all, they were just middle-class people who had worked hard, they had high taxes, they had bills to pay, they didn't have a lot of extra cash. They were a lot like us. I'm personally challenged in this passage because the priests could have said, hey, it's not our fault that the people are bringing this garbage to God. We're just sacrificing what they gave us. But God doesn't buy that. He holds the priests accountable for what the people were bringing. And God makes it very clear that he, that he want, uh, what he wants and we must respond accordingly. You know, throughout scripture there are three, at least three standards 
talked about forgiving, and one of them is that we are always supposed to bring our best to God. Israel had been taught to look through the flock and find that one animal that didn't have any defects, any blemishes, that wasn't easy to do because that animal, if it existed, was the cream of the crop. It was the most expensive. It was the one used for breeding, but it was the one God demanded. Reminds me a bit of a story in the New Testament book of John about Mary of Bethany. She loved Jesus so much, she wanted to find that one gift that she could give Jesus that would be the most appropriate expression of her devotion. She had been forgiven phenomenally by Jesus and she wanted to give to him something uh, great and then she saw it. An alabaster jar of expensive perfume which was worth about a year's salary for a common working person. And she went to Jesus with that jar and she broke it and she spilled out its fragrant fluid on his feet and the whole house was permeated with perfume and the aroma wafted up to God in recognition of his holiness. Which begs the question, are we always giving God the best that we have to give? Second, um, in, the new t- in, the, uh, in scripture we're told that we are to give to God first. I love the sense of joy that accompanies giving in a statement back in 2 Chronicles chapter 31. The people of Israel responded immediately and generously by bringing the first of their crops and grain, new wine, olive oil, honey, and all the produce of their fields. They brought a large quantity, a tithe, of all they produced. You see, God is never to get our leftovers. He should be receiving our very best. And when the Israelites gave God 10% of the best of what they had right off the top, it helped them to recognize that every single thing they had was a gift from God himself. We'll talk about that more when we come to Malachi chapter three, but I find it very interesting this week as I noticed some IRS figures that even today are are applicable, those who make the least amount of money in this country are the ones who contribute a greater percent of their income to charitable causes than those who make the most. And we wonder why the disparity. Perhaps one reason is because we, when we don't have <clears throat> as much, we're more likely to recognize that what we do have is a gift and we want to give out of gratefulness. And when we have more, we think we deserve it. And because we're spending what we have, or in some cases more than we have, the thought of giving to God first is kind of absurd or absent from our minds altogether. And yet God calls us to give to him first, no matter how difficult that may seem. God always measures the value of an offering by, the, by its worth to the person who's bringing it. Then the third point in terms of giving is that we're to give what, that which costs us something. You know, Israel had been taught that giving should always be sacrificial. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, David comes to the recognition that his own sin is what's destroying the nation and God's judgment had come in the form of a plague on the people And so David begins to intercede with God in prayer and then he wants to offer a sacrifice to God. 
and he goes to a place owned by a man named Aruna. And he told him that he wanted to build an altar to the Lord. And Aruna generously offered to give the oxen for the, for the offering and even the wood for the fire. All David had to do was sit back in the pew and everything would be taken care of. Instead of looking for a shortcut, though, David refused this discount and he said in verse 24, no, I insist on buying it for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that have, not, that have cost me nothing. <clears throat> Likewise, we must give sacrificially, not from what's easy <clears throat> and not from what's left over. And then the third and final main point, we, are, we can give God our best by grasping the greatness of God. You know, verse 10 should maybe even cause us to be, to be jolted out of our seats. Because it tells us that God would much rather have us shut the doors of the church than to come to him with pathetic leftovers. Listen to Malachi's words. How I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. How would you feel today if when you came to church, the doors of this church were locked and everything sealed up tight? See, as hard as it may be to hear, God does not need our sacrifices. And he's saying to us today, don't you dare allow me to be represented as some lifeless religious icon. I'd rather you shut everything down than continue this phony religious ritual. And if you're not prepared to give me every part of your life, don't play church with me. I'd rather the doors be closed. That's a message that stings, isn't it? But no worship at all is better than half-hearted worship because God doesn't need us to give him anything. This passage simply gives us the purpose behind our worship and our giving. Listen to these uh, next two verses, and I want you to see if you can detect a pattern. Verse 11 says, but my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Did you catch the similarities? Every time God mentions sacrifice, he follows it with the phrase, my name is great. I am a great king. My name is to be feared. Giving is directly linked always to the greatness of God. And that's why when we give to God our best, we are finally, finally grasping the greatness of our God. But conversely, when we offer him little or nothing, we're saying that God really doesn't matter much in my life. When we fail to celebrate God's greatness by giving him our best, our priorities get all out of whack and we become bored with God and we get excited about the things the world has to offer us. And that's what happened to the priests. In verse 13, instead of counting it a privilege to minister on God's behalf, they said, oh, what a boring burden this is. It was more trouble than it was worth in their minds and they were only going through the motions of religious devotion. 
And I imagine God looking at us sometimes and wondering why we get so bored with him. God actually put this into a question in Micah chapter six, verse three. He said, oh my people, what have, you, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. And then in Isaiah chapter one, we hear an extreme exclamation from the Almighty. He said, when you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? <clears throat> Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. <clears throat> Notice the strong phrase at the beginning of verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram and then sacrifices a defective one. God not only wants the temple to be shut down, but the one who offers this awful stuff as a sacrifice will be bitterly cursed. No wonder the Lord's angry. They promised to give their best, and then they gave God just the opposite. And God is saying that his name will be great whether we acknowledge it or not. You know, the party's gonna go on with or without us. God told Israel that his greatness and his grace would be taken from them and given to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish population. That means us, and that's what's happening. And there's a time coming, uh, God says, when every knee will bow and every person will acknowledge that he is Lord. Let me close today with this. I think there are three symptoms that are evident in the church today that we're not really fully engaged in worship and you be the judge of where this fits with you. But the first symptom is inadequate preparation. This is about what happens before the service begins. Are you taking time on Saturday night to get yourself ready for Sunday morning? Are you preparing your heart and your mind to give God your best? Are you preparing yourself emotionally and spiritually and mentally to give God your best and to receive a blessing from God. I think another symptom is half-hearted participation. And that speaks to what we do when we finally get to church because we generally know what's going on in the service. It's easy to, for us to just go through the motions, isn't it? There's nothing more boring than trying to worship God when our heart is really not in it. And those of us who are on stage are not here to entertain. We are here to assist in worship in pointing people to Jesus. We're not the audience, God is. And then I think the third symptom is improper motivation. And this touches the reason why we even come to church in the first place. Are we here just to get something for ourselves for the week? Or do we come because we wanna really truly meet God? Our answer to that question makes a world of difference. Instead of wondering if we liked it or not, the real issue is this, did I meet with God today? And to some degree, did I grasp his greatness? You know, I know that Malachi's message from God is not an easy one to hear, but the question remains, are we giving God our best? The best of our time, our energy, our spiritual gifts, our finances, our service, or are we giving God what's left over? If we're gonna give him our best, we must first grasp his greatness and embrace an authentic faith. But it all comes down to this.
if we ever get a glimpse of the greatness of God and what Jesus has done for us, we will probably never play church again and we will give God our best for the rest of our life. Let's pray. Lord, bring us to that place of contentment where all that happens to us begins to make sense and we can come and see your hand at work within our lives. Even if, we're only, if we only catch a glimpse of all that you're doing, help us to rejoice that you have included us in your eternal plan. So God, look deeply into our souls this day. Convict us where we have failed to measure up and then sh show us your greatness so that we will always give you our best. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.